we have made it safely through the choppy waters that are Romans 9. And so if you're still here, then the, like, we, we now have the privilege of having made our way through what some people would argue is the most difficult uh, chapter in the Bible to preach, the chapter that yields the sermons that are most difficult in the entire Bible to hear. After having kind of navigated through that, we arrive safely at you know, the promised land that is uh, Romans chapter 10. Um, and so, uh, I'm kidding a little bit, but there's a kernel of truth there. Romans 9 is, uh, is very hard. It's very hard to hear, very hard to, to swallow for a lot of reasons, right? Um, it's, um, you know, Paul uh, speaking about the, the sovereignty of God, uh, and, and, uh, and so it's, yeah, there's a, there's a lot that's difficult in Romans 9. Romans 10, in a lot of ways, is kind of the exact opposite. It's very, it's, it's palatable. It's, it's like enjoyable. You hear it, receive it. It's a blessing to your, your soul. So if we remember back to Romans 9, the whole thing was Paul's argument, Paul's line of logic was that all people are saved by God's grace through trusting in Jesus when they turn from their sin and, and, and trust in Christ to save them. That's kind of the, the, the through line of the entire book of Romans. And the undeniable fact of the matter is that there are and there were um, a whole lot of ethnically Jewish people within the nation of Israel who have not. They had not and they have not turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus, which means that according to Paul's gospel, those ethnically Jewish people will not be saved. They will not enjoy the covenant promises of God. And so Paul has to explain that. If, if you go to a group of people who are at that moment under the impression that they're all going to be saved and you proclaim to them a new message that implies that many of them will not be saved, maybe the vast majority of them will not be saved, then you have to explain yourself. And so Romans 9 was Paul explaining himself for why that's the, the case. And his explanation was, right, uh, to the question of why are so few ethnically Jewish people actually included in the true spiritual Israel, the people that God is saving through Christ, Paul's answer, according to Romans 9, was that the final decisive factor that determines who receives God's salvation and who, right, who's going to be a part of those vessels of mercy, who's going to be a part of the true spiritual Israel, the final decisive factor is God's sovereign purposes. It's not your ethnic identity. It's not whether you were born to Jewish parents or not. It's not anything that you can do in terms of works or, or uh, good deeds or merit. The, the ultimate determining factor is God's sovereign purposes and God's sovereign mercy. And God has purposed to save some and not all of the nation of Israel, the, the Isaacs and not the Ishmaels, the Jacobs and not the Esau's. That was Romans 9, which again is a tough pill to swallow because it teaches that God is sovereign over all things, not us. And, and we like to think that we're in control. We like to think that we deserve to be in control. And the, the, the prospect of us not being as in control as we think we are or we think that we deserve to be is a tough pill to swallow. So Romans 9 was tough. Congratulations on making it through it with me. Romans 10 is just like this balm. It's this like, it's a, it's a warm blanket. It's, it's uh, you know, the, the, the gist of Romans 10, and you can kind of determine in your own soul whether this is encouraging or not. The gist of Romans 10 is that God has made a way for you, no matter who you are, 
no matter what you've done, no matter where you're from, Gentiles in particular, but all people, God has made a way for you to be saved and for you to be reconciled to him. Amen? That's, that's good news. That's encouraging to our souls. But that's not even it. That's not even the half of it, right? That's good news. The really good news is it's easy. It's, it's, it's incredible. Like, it's easy to receive God's grace and his mercy and then to become the, the beneficiary of it. It's, it's incredibly easy. It's not hard and it's not difficult. It doesn't require you to do all kinds of crazy things. You don't have to follow the noble eightfold path. You don't have to adhere to the five pillars of Islam. You don't have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. Right? Trusting and receiving God's eternal salvation through trusting in Christ is easy. You don't, it's, not, it's not difficult. There's no works involved in it at all. You just have to trust and receive the, the finished work of Christ. That's Romans 10. A few qualifiers on the front end, lest I be uh, misinterpreted or taken out of context. So, so what Romans 10 is not saying is that uh, the Christian life that God calls us to is easy, because it's not. Christian life is incredibly difficult. It requires self-denial. It requires costly repentance. It, Romans 10 is not saying... So it's not saying that the Christian life is easy. It's also not saying that it's, it's easy or that it comes natural to our fallen human hearts to decide to become a Christian, because that's hard too. It's hard to, it's hard to turn away from your own self-sufficiency. It's hard to turn away from everything that you've ever known about yourself and about your uh, doing and working and earning it and then therefore being entitled to what you have done and worked and, and earned. It's very hard, it's very difficult to deny yourself and become a Christian. It's very hard and it's very difficult to walk the costly life of discipleship that God has laid out for Christians. So that's all, that's all we'll, we'll say that up front. But those, that's also another sermon for another time. Because this sermon is about the fact that it's, it's easy. It's incredibly easy to become a Christian when compared to, over and against, in, in contrast with uh, trying to earn your salvation through religious self-righteousness and good deeds and, and merit. Paul is saying, that's hard and it, it's bad. And, and trusting in Jesus, that is easy and it is good. It's the best thing ever. It, it is easy and it will result in your enjoying the most fulfillment, the most pleasure, the most joy that you could ever imagine, both in this life and for all of eternity. So if you make it through the hard truths of Romans 9, that you're not as in control as you thought you were or that you feel that you're entitled to be, you arrive at Romans 10, right? Enjoy the, the easy, free grace of God that's offered to you in salvation. So I'm going to read Romans 10, 1 through 13, and then we're going to, we're going to take our way, make our way through it. It says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness 
to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness that's based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to to bring Christ down. Don't say in your heart who will descend into the abyss, that's to bring Christ up from the dead. No, what does it say? It says the word is near you. It's, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege that it is to gather here together to listen to your word, to consider your word. God, we pray that you would help us to humbly come under the authority of your word rather than uh, pridefully seeking to stand in authority over it. We pray that you would help us to understand it, submit to it, and obey it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is very similar to how Paul started Romans 9, if you remember that, a few weeks ago. He said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for the sake of my brothers, the nation of Israel. I, I want them to be saved so badly that if I could, I would allow myself to be cut off from Christ for their sake so that they could be saved, right? Romans 9, Romans 10 starts out, I really love the nation of Israel. I really want them to be saved. My deepest desire is that they would be saved. So again, the, all of the hard truths from Romans 9 are bookended at the first, chapter, first verse of Romans 9 and the first verse of Romans 10 with Paul articulating that he really, really loves his fellow Israelites, really wants them to be saved. He would go to any length possible to see to it that they could be saved, which is, which is um, helpful to read because, again, one of the criticisms that's often levied against people who believe the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation, the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine that, that people are saved because God elects them to salvation. One of the criticisms that they often receive is that they're cold and unloving and, and uh, they don't care about people. They, they, they don't care about evangelism. They don't care about lost people. God's going to do what God's going to do, so I'm not going to waste my time sharing the gospel with people. I'll just spend my time getting all of my doctrine exactly right and judging and resenting everyone else whose doctrine is not as good as mine. That's the, that's the caricature, that's the criticism of people that believe in the doctrine of, of God's sovereignty and salvation. But 
If you read and believe your Bible, and you read Romans 9 and you read Romans 10, which are kind of the epicenter of, the, of where in the Bible people point to, to to support the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation, if you, if you believe that, if you believe in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, and I do, if you believe in the doctrine of predestination, and I do, and if you believe that God elects his people to salvation, and that he saves them and keeps them, which I do, if you believe those things, then you have to care about people. You have to care about your friends, your family, your neighbors. You have to care about their souls. You have to eagerly desire that they would be saved. You have to hope and pray that they would make a decision of their own volition, their own will, that they would trust in Jesus and be saved. You have to share the gospel boldly with them. If you don't do all of those things, then you don't believe in the doctrine of predestination. Right? Those things are not, uh, you know, they're not, it's not like we believe in predestination and we, the, the, to believe in predestination means that you care about lost people, you share the gospel with lost people, and you pray that they would receive the gospel. Because that's what Paul does. And Paul believes in that doctrine of predestination. Those who believe God's word in Romans 9 and 10 should be more committed to and more zealous in evangelism than anyone that you know. So Paul says, I love the nation of Israel. I eagerly desire for them to be saved. I, I lose sleep over it. I, pr- I would go to hell if I could to see to it that some of my fellow Israelites would become Christians. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So they're zealous for religion. They're zealous for obeying God. They care, they're diligent, they're trying really hard. They're as sincere as they could possibly be, but their zeal is is without knowledge. They're sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. We're wondering about the question of, yeah, what about people who don't believe in Jesus? Other religions, atheism, whatever it is. Right? People who don't believe in Jesus, but they're sincere in their faith. They're sincere in what they do believe. A sincere Buddhist or a sincere Muslim. Paul says there are people who are zealous, but their zeal is without knowledge. They're sincere, but they are sincerely wrong. And he says those people are not saved because he's sitting here hoping and praying and wishing that they would get saved. And the reason why is because sincerity is not enough. You do have to be sincere, and you do have to sincerely believe, right? It's, right? The, the being saved doesn't require less than that, but ultimately... You're not saved by the sincerity of your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith. So you could be the most authentic, most genuine, most sincere person in the world. You could possess a faith that is so strong, so sincere. But if your faith is not in Jesus Christ... 
If the object of your faith is something other than Jesus Christ, then it, it does not have the, the power, it does not have the ability to save, to save someone. Because it's not about the sincerity of your faith, it's about the, right, the person with the weakest, flimsiest, most unsettled, most unsure, shifting sand faith in the world. If their faith is in Jesus that he will save them, then Jesus will save them. And he will never, ever let them go. And the person with the strongest, most vibrant faith in the world, if it's in something else other than Jesus, be it themselves or their performance or some other religion or philosophy, they will find that the object of their faith cannot save them because only Jesus can save a person. So the nation of Israel has a zeal for God. That much is, in, is not in dispute. But their zeal is without knowledge. It's religious zeal that is unable to save them. And he explains why, right? For being, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So God has established his righteousness, a righteousness, the righteousness that God's righteousness requires God to require. God has established that, and many within the nation of Israel were ignorant of that righteousness, right? They, they, the, the righteousness that God established was so lofty, so unattainable, that the only way to arrive at it, the only way to meet it, was to have it given to you, to receive it through Christ, trusting in Christ. You can either receive the righteousness of God from Christ by faith, that's what it means to submit to God's righteousness, or you can reject that, denounce that, go another direction and say, I'm going to, instead of submitting to God's righteousness and receiving it from Christ by faith, I'm going to seek to establish my own righteousness through effort and merit and good works and religious accomplishments. And Paul is saying the nation of Israel rejected God's righteousness that's received by faith, and they instead sought to establish their own righteousness through religion and effort and merit. They were zealous, but it was zeal without knowledge. Right? I don't want the righteousness of Christ imputed to me as a result of my trusting in him. I want to be righteous on my own. I want to stand on my own two feet in and of myself. I want to get what I earn. I want to eat what I kill. I don't need grace because I've got it all by myself. Which is exactly what Paul said the nation of Israel did back in Romans 9, verse 30. He said, um, those who did not pursue the righteousness of God, they actually found it. Right? Gentiles. They, weren't pursue- they found it because they weren't pursuing righteousness by works. They arrived at it by faith in Christ. But others, as the nation of Israel, they were pursuing the righteousness through the law, through works, and they failed to obtain it. They, they failed to live up to the righteous standard of God. They failed to embody the righteousness that God required of them. They were ignorant of the fact that God wanted to impute Christ's righteousness to them through faith. They did not submit to that, and instead they sought to establish their own righteousness through works and, and merit. That's Paul's kind of description in passing of Uh, the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant. In verse 4, he says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
Christ is the end of the law. To, so, so it's a binary. It's, it's not, you can't do one, it's, you can't do both. It's not a spectrum. It's, it's, a, it's a light switch. It's on or off. You've got, you've, you've, you're on the pathway that is your Christian life. There is a fork in the road and you can only pick one way. There's the way of the law. There's the way of belief. And you can only do one. And Christ, you, you can't, if you choose Christ, then it's the end of the way of the law. You, can't, you cannot trust in Christ while walking down the way of the law. Trusting in Christ means that you are going the way of belief. You, cannot, you can't be a Christian while still holding on to your own works, your own performance, your own, uh, what you, what your own accomplishments as the basis for your acceptance before God. You either go the way of the law, and you try your hardest, you hope for the best, or you go the way of faith, and you trust in Jesus, and you receive the eternal assurance that he gives you, right? This way is zeal without knowledge, this way is eternal security and assurance. So Paul's saying, I want Israel to go the way of faith, but sadly many of them have gone the route of the law, zeal without knowledge, and I'm sad about that. I want them to trust in Christ. Instead, they've chosen to, right? The law is this treadmill that you just run on perpetually forever and ever and ever and you never know if you're going to arrive anywhere the way of belief is receiving a free gift that's being offered to you by the god of the universe and enjoying all of the assurance that comes with it and so paul says i am hoping and praying that israel will choose the way of faith rather than the way of the law but for our purposes here pick Right, you Romans, right? Figure out which one do you want? Do you want to strive forever and ever and never arrive at your destination and never know if what you've done is enough? Or would you rather receive the richest, best, most incredible gift that you could ever ask for that's totally and completely free? And then he spends the next few verses in five and following explaining and kind of drilling down on what, it, what that means to receive the righteousness of Christ through faith. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commands, sh- the commandments shall live by them. So this is quoting from Leviticus 18. Now, when you arrive at Leviticus 18, God has just spent... The second half of Exodus, pretty much from the Red Sea crossing and the, the, you know, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, from that point, all the this whole second half of the book of Exodus and the whole first half of the book of Leviticus outlining the law, the righteous requirements of laws about society, laws about relationships, laws about worship, Sabbath, sacrifices, priesthood, tabernacle, offerings, right? Laws about health and cleanliness, hundreds and hundreds of laws. And after all that, you arrive at Leviticus 18.5, and God says, if you obey them, if you follow me and obey my statutes, you will live. If you fail to keep them, like the land of Egypt that you came from, 
And like the land of Canaan to which you are going, if you fail to keep my laws, you will die. But if you obey me and keep my laws, you will live. And Paul points to that verse and says, that's that's emblematic of what it means to pursue salvation by works. Righteousness based on the law. If you want to be saved, you have to obey the law perfectly all the time. Follow my commands and you will live. That's the righteousness based on the law. Leviticus 18. For righteousness based on faith, verse 6 and following, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30. It says, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? That's to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, here's what's going on in that part of the Old Testament. We are, we're, we're some 40 years later after Leviticus 18. All of the people that uh, God gave the law to uh, and that he was speaking to in Leviticus 18, they're dead. They've been wandering around in the wilderness for decades. And they're right about to enter into the promised land. They're just getting ready to enter it. And God renews, the, the, the whole book of Deuteronomy is God renewing his covenant promises with this new generation of people who are about to enter the promised land. He reiterates and renews his covenant and says, All that stuff that I told your parents and grandparents 40 years ago, it still holds. I still care about that stuff. When you enter the promised land, I want you to trust me. I want you to walk with me. And in in Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 to 14, he says, I want you to trust me. I want you to walk with me. But I realize that that sounds hard. I realize it sounds very difficult. I realize it sounds like more than you can handle. But listen to me. It's actually quite doable. It's actually fairly accessible. When you really understand what I'm really asking for from you, you'll realize that it's actually quite doable for a normal person like yourselves. And he says, for the commandment that I command to you today, it's not too hard for you. And it's not far off. It's not in heaven that you have to say, I must ascend to heaven and bring it to us, that I may hear it and do it. Nor is it way beyond the sea that I need to say, who will go over the sea and bring it to us, that we may hear and do it. He says, the word of God is very near to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you can do it. The whole purpose of Deuteronomy 30 verses 11 to 14 is that Moses is saying, I get that obeying the law sounds exceedingly difficult like it's something that you could never do there's a million rules and regulations and boxes to check eyes to dot t's to cross you feel like you'll never be able to do it but the reality is when you really understand what god really wants from you you'll see that it's not that difficult god doesn't want you to do all of those things as a means of accomplishing your own salvation through works righteousness. That was never his plan. He's not commanding you to go to heaven or or descend to the bottom of the sea. What he wants from you is right in front of you. It's right in your heart. It's right in your mouth. All he wants you to do is trust him. Trust him in your heart and then confess that trust publicly with your mouth. That's it. Everything else that you saw, heard, read in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're all great. By all means, do them if you can. But they were never intended to be the mechanism by which you were saved and accepted by God. That is now and has always been faith. 
Trusting God's promises, believing in God's grace, and then identifying with him and and trusting him to save you. So in Romans 10, Paul is pulling from Deuteronomy 30 and saying, my opponents are preaching a gospel of works righteousness. And you can put the word gospel in quotes there because gospel means good news. And the fact of the matter is, a gospel of, good, of works righteousness is not good news at all. It's bad news. Work, earn, do, try, accomplish. If you're lucky, maybe, maybe you will not be damned forever. That's the gospel my opponents are preaching. Salvation by faith and not by works. But God's actual plan for salvation, what God really has uh, architected for how he wants his people to be saved is not that. The righteousness, that, the, the, the God's plan for salvation is not that you would accomplish a righteousness on your own, but that you would receive Christ's righteousness. The righteousness based on faith does not say, do, does not say who will ascend into heaven, meaning who will accomplish and earn their way who will like the people of the tower of babel work their way up to heaven through good works and accomplish all you know accomplish everything that they need so that they can be good enough and strong enough and competent enough and spiritual enough and and religious enough right i can earn my way to heaven in my own power in my own strength and i'll get all the credit and all the glory paul says that kind of thinking is saying in your heart I am going to ascend to heaven, and it is utterly incompatible with Christianity. The righteousness based on faith also says, who will, or it also does not say, who will descend into the abyss. If, if ascending to heaven is accomplishing your own salvation through works righteousness, then descending into the abyss would be uh, punishing yourself, atoning for your own sin all by yourself. I lost my temper. I used bad language. I, you know, I, did, I did something bad, and therefore I need to do something. I need to deny myself something. I need to hurt myself. I need to force myself to suffer in some way so that I can feel as if I have paid for, for my own sins. That's descending into the abyss. And Paul says, ascending into heaven through works, righteousness, and earning is incompatible with Christianity, and descending into the abyss through atoning for my own sin is incompatible with Christianity. You cannot ascend to heaven and accomplish your own salvation, and you cannot descend into the abyss and pay for your own sin. Those things are impossible. He says, you want to know how impossible they are? Here's what you might as well try to do if you're going to do them. To ascend into heaven and to accomplish your own salvation, you might as well bring Christ down. Does anyone here think that they could go to heaven, find Jesus Christ, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning from his throne, and kidnap him and bring him down here to earth with you. That's not possible. You can't do it. Does anyone here think that they could go down to hell and 
find Jesus and bring him back up with, despite the fact that he's not there, bring him from hell here up to earth. It's not, it's not possible. Paul's saying the prospect of earning your own salvation or trying to atone for your own sin, they're absurd and impossible. No one can do them. No one can bring Jesus down from heaven. No one can bring Jesus up from the the dead. It's a non-starter. But, like, so you can't do it. It's impossible to bring, but what has Christ done for us in the gospel? Like, what do we celebrate every year in, through our, like in Advent and, and Easter, in Advent we celebrate the incarnation, Jesus himself coming down from heaven to be with us. Good Friday, Easter, we celebrate Christ's death and his resurrection, being raised up from the, the dead. So Jesus in his incarnation has come down from heaven, and Jesus through his resurrection has come up from the, the dead. So these things have they've already been done. They're in, he, Paul is saying they're not possible. It's, it's as possible for you to earn your salvation or atone for your own sin as doing this absurd, impossible thing. But also, this absurd, impossible thing, Jesus has already done it. It's already been accomplished for you. So, so Paul is taking this, this the, the thing that you would have to do that is impossible... On both counts, Paul is taking this thing that you would have to do that's impossible, accomplishing your own sin or accomplishing your own salvation or atoning for your own sin. He's saying you could never do it, and he's replacing it with something that Jesus has already done for you. Jesus has already come down from heaven. Jesus has already come up from the dead. So, So you don't need to spend any more time or effort trying to earn your salvation or atone for your sin. Because A, not only is it impossible and absurd, but B, it's been done already. Jesus has already accomplished your salvation. You don't have to do it again. Jesus has already atoned for your sin. You don't have to do it again. All you have to do is trust in him, trust in what he has done, and trust that his work is sufficient to save you. And that's verse 8 and following. What does it say? The word, back to Deuteronomy 30, the word is near you, it is in your mouth, and it is in your, the the word of faith that we proclaim is near you. It's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So, so stop trying to accomplish your own salvation. Stop trying to atone for your own sin. You can't, you won't, and Jesus has done it for you anyway. All you need to do is receive and trust him. You need to believe it in your heart, this internal private thing that happens, but also confess it with your mouth, this like publicly identifying thing that that happens. There's no earning, no accomplishing, no treadmill to run on. You just believe it, receive it, and enjoy the, the, the benefits of it. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, a few things about this verse. It's, it's, not, it's not saying that uh, being justified and being saved are two different things, right? If you 
you know, if you believe, then you can be justified, but you won't be saved, right? Um, right? Paul is kind of using being justified and being saved synonymously describing the same thing, the same event. It's also not saying that verbal, spoken affirmation of one's faith is some kind of magical work that you have to do, right? That, that, that un, right? Like, like you can trust in Jesus, but you're not really saved until you recite some magical prayer or incantation or spell. It's not saying that. It's also not saying that uh, all you need to do is give intellectual assent to this one arbitrary fact about Jesus, namely that he was raised from the dead. As if you can just like pick that one thing, I believe that, and then because I believe that, uh, because I you know, give intellectual assent to that, I am now magically, automatically saved. It's not saying any of that. So you could you know, uh, contort this verse and kind of come up with some, some strange theology. What Paul is saying, though, is that salvation from God comes as the result of faith in Christ. Not works, not accomplishments, faith in Christ. When, when a person trusts in Jesus and who he is and what he does, right? When a person trusts that Jesus is God, Jesus became a man, Jesus lived a perfect life, Jesus died a sacrificial death in our place to absorb the wrath of God. When a person trusts that Jesus was raised from the dead bodily in victory over Satan and sin and death, and and that's God showing his approval uh, of Christ and showing that he has accepted the sacrifice that was offered on behalf of sinners. When a person trusts in all of that, and when they put their weight, when they put... The, the, the burden of their salvation onto Jesus' shoulders instead of keeping it squarely on their own, then they will be saved, right? That's what it means to believe in your heart, right? And to confess with your mouth is, is to, um, you know, is to, to trust in Christ and kind of put the, the weight of your salvation onto Christ. And then what he's also saying is that when you do that, when you believe in your heart, then the inevitable next thing that happens is that it spills out of your heart and it spills out of your mouth in a public verbal uh, confession, right? When a person truly believes in Jesus, they're going to articulate the fact that they believe in Jesus. It's not possible to believe in your heart and then just hold it in and keep it there, tucked away, privately, on purpose, forever. No one will ever know. I'll never tell anyone. I'll just be an undercover Christian my whole life. Paul is saying true belief in your heart is inevitably going to spill out into willing, exuberant, excited, proactive, enthusiastic, confessing with your mouth. Even when it means suffering, even when it invites persecution, because what you say with your mouth is a reflection of what you believe in your heart. Or as Jesus puts it, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So this is a, he's quoting again from Isaiah 28, which is what we saw last week. Using it as evidence to support that, to, to support his thesis 
that if you trust in Jesus, you will be saved, right? The, the pathway to salvation is not works righteousness. It's not accomplishments or merit. The pathway to salvation is trusting in Jesus, believing in who he is and what he has done. And when a person does that, when they trust in Jesus in their heart and turn away from their sin and turn to themselves, they will never, ever be put to shame. God will indelibly, unchangeably, forever, God will save every person who trusts in Jesus. God will never, ever lose anyone who trusts in Jesus. Not one single person ever in all of eternity will trust in Jesus and then be put to shame and experience the judgment of God. When you trust in Jesus, God saves you. And when God saves someone, he keeps them. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. So now he's starting to kind of click back on the, the, the you know, main theme of Romans 9 through 11, which is Jews versus Gentiles, right? Verse 12 is basically Paul saying, having established that salvation is received and enjoyed through faith in Christ and not by works, which I just did in verses 1 through 11. Having established that, I'd like to reiterate that the group of people who have done that and who are going to do that, the people of God, the body of Christ, the vessels of mercy who trust in Jesus, that group will not be comprised exclusively of ethnically Jewish people. It will also contain Gentiles. In fact, it may even be comprised primarily of Gentiles. God is not working in human history to save an ethnically homogenous group of people, only Israelites and no Gentiles. He's working to save his people, his multi-ethnic bride comprised of people from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, which is good news for us because we are of those other tribes and we, we, most of us here are Gentiles. We hail from idolatrous, pagan, idol-worshiping nations and God has graciously allowed us to be saved by Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah. So praise God that he saves both Jews and Gentiles and bestows his riches of his grace on everyone who calls on him. That's good news for everyone. It's especially good news for Gentiles. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This last verse is a quote from Joel chapter 2. So we got a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, Romans 9 through 11, there's a lot of Old Testament references, but the book of Joel is a, is a, is a fascinating. It's a quick read, three short chapters. You should read this afternoon if you get a minute. But the whole book centers around this uh, invasion of locusts that God says is going to come upon the nation of Israel. Your crops are going to be devoured. The trees are going to be literally eaten 
from the bark on in and just, just completely decimated, right? The entire food supply of the nation of Israel, their entire livelihood is all going to be gone. And then Paul uses that as an analogy, this locust invasion as an analogy for what it will be like when foreign nations and foreign militaries come and invade and attack and besiege and defeat them. And then Paul uses that as an analogy for the judgment of God, the wrath of God coming against Israel for their sin and rebellion. Locusts just devouring everything, hostile military destroying everything, wrath of God, judgment of God against sin and rebellion. And in the midst of all of that, as depressing as that is, in the midst of all of that, in Joel 2, we see a word of hope. That God is not going to give his people over to judgment forever. That he's going to preserve and keep a remnant among them. Joel 2 includes verses like, Return to me, because I am gracious and merciful. I am slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I, the Lord, am going to send grain and oil and wine. I will defeat your enemies. I will give you the rain that you desperately need. I will restore everything to you that was taken from you. I will pour out my Holy Spirit on you. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Without fail, without exception, without distinction, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Paul is citing that and saying, that's what the gospel is like. The gospel is this story of widespread, comprehensive, holistic, cataclysmic destruction, death, mayhem, everything is ruined, it's eaten, it's destroyed, eternal, conscious punishment separated from the loving presence of God. But in the midst of all that, Jesus comes from heaven to earth. Jesus fulfills the promises of the covenants of the Old Testament. Jesus lives a sinless life. Jesus dies a sacrificial death. Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus invites people to trust in him. He invites people to return to me because I am gracious and merciful. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in steadfast love. I will restore you. I will defeat your enemies. I will give you life and salvation. I will pour out my Holy Spirit on you. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in the person and work of Jesus will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, that is the good news of the gospel, that God is inviting us this morning to hear and to believe and to to trust in. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that salvation is not by works, but rather it's by faith. We thank you that we don't have to ascend to heaven with our good works, 
We thank you that we don't have to descend to hell and atone for our own sin. We thank you that all we have to do is turn from our sin, trust in you, confess with our mouths, believe in our hearts, and call upon the name of the Lord. God, we call upon your name together this morning. We trust in you together this morning because Jesus is our only hope. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.